I find it very difficult to describe Humph because I think probably the last thing he needs is to be told that he's 80. He's 80 going on 14, of course. And so I usually describe him to people as a rather cheeky 14-year-old who's aged prematurely. Hello. Hello and welcome to I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, the show that gets laughs at the drop of a cat. <laughs> you join us for our second week amid the splendour of the Royal National Theatre. The National actually comprises three stage venues, the Olivier, which is named after Sir Lawrence Olivier, the Cottesloe, which isn't named after Sir Lawrence Olivier, <laughs> and our venue today, the Littleton, named after a relative of mine, Oliver Littleton, first Viscount Chandos and the theatre's first chairman. Oliver, or Uncle Viscount Chandos, <laughs> as I knew him, joined the government in 1940 when a House of Commons seat was found for him at Aldershot which explains why he had to shout during Prime Minister's question. <laughs> Humphrey Littleton was 80 years old on May the 23rd. It's hard to believe because what he's managed to pack into those 80 years would take most of us at least a couple of centuries. A legendary jazz man, he's been a cartoonist, journalist, broadcaster, author, calligraphist, bird watcher, and probably the best game show host in the world. Right, teams, our first round is called Complete Song Lyrics, and it celebrates the work of the lyricist. Men like Peter Skellen and Richard Stilgo, who I understand are revered by Mexicans for their sheet music. <laughs> this programme tells the story of his life, from upper-class baby to national treasure via Eton and the Guards, from Basin Street to Broadcasting House via Mornington Crescent. We'll hear about the radio comedians who have influenced and inspired him, and his Radio 4 colleagues will spill the beans about I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. In this game, teams, I shall read out the first lines of some well-known songs. I'd like you to complete them. Willie, this is your line. MacArthur's Park is melting through the dark. All the sweet... <laughs> Humphrey Littleton's words are spoken by an actor. <laughs> <laughs> MacArthur's Park is melting through the dark, all the sweet green icing flowing down, someone left the cake out in the rain. I don't think I can take it, because it took so long to bake it, and I'll never see that recipe again. Oh, bugger. <laughs> Grey-haired, tall and distinguished, Humphrey's an imposing figure. When he steps onto the stage, the clue panellists stand, or kneel, in genuine respect. He has unfeasibly large feet, so he has to scour the country for suitable footwear. And he dresses in a style that only real toffs can carry off, perhaps best described as post-grunge ironic casual. He may give the impression of a slightly tetchy schoolmaster, but in his eye, there's always a twinkle that flashes all the way to the back row of the upper circle. Graham Garden, here's yours. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. She said, son, you'll be a bachelor boy. <laughs> Willie, how's this? Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living doll. Anyone got a bicycle pump? <laughs> Humph is courteous and enormously polite. He must be to sit quietly by while the teams inflict such grievous harm on the music he loves. We're now going to move on to a complicated round called One Song to the Tune of Another, in which the tune of one song and the words of another are brought together and combined as if they were both one song. It's hard to get your head round that at first, but if you try to think of it as one song without the tune, but with the words, to the tune of another song, but without the words, <laughs> it may help. Teams, to accompany you, I'm sure we'd all like to welcome our brand new pianist. But until he's provided, we'll just have to make... <laughs> we'll just have to make do with our old one. Here's Colin Sell. <laughs> Willie, I'd like you to sing the words of the laughing policeman to the tune of As Time Goes By. So would I. <laughs> I know a fat old policeman. He's always on our street A fat, jolly, red-faced man He really is a treat He's too kind for a policeman But how did this side of Hump's career begin, or indeed why? Uh, this is where I have to own up. 
Bill Oddie and I had been writing I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again for radio, but we'd also started writing for TV. We discovered that radio writing was paid much less well, although it was, if anything, more difficult to do, than scripts for television. So I came up with the idea of doing a radio comedy show without a script. Get a couple of teams of writer-performers, give them silly things to do, and hope they'd write their own scripts on the hoof, as it were. This was in 1972, and I took my idea to David Hatch, who later went on to be managing director of BBC Radio, but at the time worked in light entertainment as a humble producer. Actually, he wasn't that humble, but he was prepared to give it a go. However, we needed a chairman. I don't remember which of us said it, but I sort of remember the context was that what we already had was a scripted show, which was like a sort of, you know, a, a composed piece of music. And your notion was we should actually go sort of off-piste and not have words written down, but invent it. And the equivalent to the composed piece of music was jazz. And I think it was from that kind of conversation that his name emerged in the air over the third pint. And I think we both said it together and then both realised how clever we both were. In those days, if you did any kind of broadcasting, whether it was about music or anything else, uh, you were eventually asked to do a pilot. And I was asked to do this one, and I'd done several before, which had gone straight down the plug without touching the sides. So um, I thought, like everybody did, you know, well, we get a studio fee, drive in and do it, forget about it. Nowadays, although we're not given much in advance, at least we know sort of what the rounds are going to be, approximately. And also the audience have a feral idea that this is going to be a fairly silly programme. Now, there we were, and you'd find yourself squeaking in a few minutes, just nothing more there, which is quite funny for a short while. Just, you can't think of anything to say. It was just very, very embarrassing. Tim Brooke Taylor has a double-barrelled name, so at that first meeting with Humph, he recognised class when he saw it. We, we became fellow souls because we thought it was the worst day we'd spent the whole of our lives. And um, we finished the recording, and it was just diabolical. And we had a drink in the pub, and we parted, and we both said, never, ever, ever again. We still say that at the end of each series as a sort of um, superstition now, but we really meant it. I can remember everyone going around to the Sherlock Holmes pub afterwards, still ashen, <laughs> Somebody said to David Hatch, well, what do you think? Do you think it'll ever be broadcast? And I always remember his answer. He said, well, possibly, but only on Boxing Day after lunch when everyone's drunk. <laughs> Luckily, the recording of the pilot no longer exists. But what did Humph make of it all? He was a respected musician. What possessed him to get involved? It came as a shock when they said it's going on the air. And I remember going into... Uh, the Playhouse, wasn't it, the first shows, mm. I think. I remember driving in thinking, I don't know what to do on this, you know. And uh, in desperation, I just decided to express how I felt at the time, which was uh, I've got a perfectly good career playing the trumpet, <laughs> broadcasting about jazz. What on earth am I doing here? OK, then, Tim, we'll yeah. play Kim's game. What we're going to do is... Show me to the... Show Tim Brooke Taylor. We could you. play new words again. We're then going to cover him up. And then the rest of you have got to tell me what you remember having seen. Ah. Oh. <laughs> take a long look, teams. Remember, got to memorise. I'll give you another ten seconds to memorise. Music from Colin Sell. <laughs> what I worried more about I'm Sorry than ever I did about just a minute was how sustainable it was because um, you had injected an awful lot of ideas for rounds into it, which one didn't know whether they what sort of mileage they had and what other new ideas there could be to insert round about programme three or four. So I knew I'd got a hell of a good show for, for one, and one wondered whether we'd make 13. That's, I suppose that was my worry. To everyone's surprise, David Hatch was right. Tony Whitby, the inspired head of Radio 4, commissioned a series. The problem was that a lot of people had no idea what the show was supposed to be and thought it was a big mistake. And many listeners agreed. The BBC produced an audience research report. And although a few of those canvassed thought this delightful new show with its off-the-cuff humour was a winner, the reaction was, to say the least, mixed. Some thought the teams, while trying too hard, 
had done their best. Others commented, idiotic rubbish. I was embarrassed for the teams. And this dismal effort is no good to anybody. What seems to have tipped the balance was Humph's chairmanship, which was universally admired. Excellent, exceptionally fine, and an inspired choice. So the series came back, again and again. Radio critic Gillian Reynolds describes her reactions to it over the years. When I first heard it, I didn't like it very much. I thought it was a sort of cheapo replacement for a, a, a show with a proper script and proper production, like, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, which, of course, we all loved. And it began to grow on me. It does have this peculiar cosmology all of its own. All the planets revolve around the chairman, and he is the still centre, and they'll go whiz, whiz, well, well, bank crash, all around him, and there he is just beaming effulgently. But the twist with Humphrey Littleton is that he will do something very unexpected, say something totally out of kilter with the rest of them, and be funny of them, all of them put together. Whose go is it? <laughs> no trick questions. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, it's Jeremy's turn. Should we check the lid of the box and see if we're doing this right? <laughs> says children five to seven. <laughs> now, come on, Barry, be serious. And I'll say to midnight. Sorry. Let's, let's be serious for a bit, because there are people listening at home following this game. <laughs> Have we had... Sorry, I'll read that again. It says people listening in a home. <laughs> Fortunately, the teams aren't in competition with the chairman. Barry Cryer sums up our feelings about the master. He's charismatic as a chairman. If I ever listened to it at home, uh, the man has enormous presence. You can almost see him. It's a very rare quality that some radio performers have. He has a wonderfully tongue-in-cheek, patronising way of addressing you sometimes. One of the, 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 the lines I treasure from the programme, I think it was in the last series, was when uh, Colin Zell interjected at something from the piano and... Um, Hum sort of turned his head in that tired, irritated way which the listeners can't see but you can almost hear. And I said, his name's Colin Selhumph, he's the pianist. Have you met? Uh, to which Humph replied, fortunately not, I'm very fleet of foot. <laughs> now, I mean, that's, that's poetry to me. One of his great skills is you can see him looking expectantly at you when you're in the middle of something and it's really... He's giving you the choice of, do you want to stop now? Are you up a, a, an alley or a creek without any paddle? And then you probably give him the look of that panic in your eye and he'll say, oh, no, sorry, our time's up. Or, or he will suddenly see you're about to go on and where he would come in, he would let you go on. Now, that's very skillful. Tim, what's the connection between a box of false eyeballs, an artificial leg and a bottle of bull semen? I'll say that again. <laughs> I love it when you talk dirty, Hump. <laughs> it's just I hadn't read that before. It, it, uh... Excuse me. Did it conjure something up in your mind, Hump? <laughs> Memories, is it? Right. <laughs> something that happened in the war, was it? <laughs> Tim, what's the connection between a box of false eyeballs, an artificial leg and a bottle of bull semen? This is the first aid kit of the South African rugby team. <laughs> and obviously something that happened to you in the war as well. Actually, the right answer, and it did happen to me during the war, but not coincidence, they've all been handed in to the London Transport Lost Property Office. <laughs> <laughs> Willie, Willie, your turn. Can you please connect Coca-Cola, Pledge and Nova? Well, they're, they're all jolly useful standbys if you can't get onto Dino Rod. <laughs> Little household hint for anybody here who drains a plug. Is that right? No, 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 it's not. Oh. Anybody know? No. Well, they're all product names with unfortunate meanings in other countries. In China, the literal translation of the word Coca Cola means bite the wax tadpole. <laughs> <laughs> How often would you say that? <laughs> You're saying it all the time in wartime, I tell you. 
All this talk about wartime makes Humph sound rather old-fashioned. Well, so he is, but that's all part of the fun. Paul Merton. I think the first time I did it was about 1989, and I was quite thrilled to get the call to do it, and um, it was done at the old Paris studios in Lower Regent Street, and uh, I was quite surprised at how serious it was. We played a game of Mornington Crescent, and... Uh, Willie Rushton was furious. I just got in uh, with a very nice Tottenham Court Road, I seem to remember, and he threw his pencil at me across the studio floor in a, in a fit of temper. Um, and Humph was there, sort of like you know the avuncular figure. I remember very early on making some joke about the difference valet and butlers or something. There was some dreadful joke about how green was my valet. I think we were sort of like trying to enact that out, and we were going through the sort of rituals that a valet does, and, and Humph said a valet wouldn't do that. It would be a butler's job which was uh, <laughs> a good note to have. What is the secret of Humph's incomparable skill as a game show host? Perhaps it's a matter of breeding. Humphrey Littleton was born on May the 23rd, 1921, at Eton, where his father was a housemaster. The family home was dominated by women, his mother and his four sisters, plus nannies and nursery maids. A certain amount of amateur cello scraping went on, but there are few clues to his musical talents in his ancestry. What is certain is that Humphrey Littleton belongs to a long-standing, well-connected, upper-class family with a capital F. And, like all such families, there are many eccentric relatives whose exploits Humph sometimes shares with his audience. Guy Fawkes was born in York in 1606. He was hung, drawn and quartered at Tyburn and buried at Marble Arch, Cheapside, Ludgate and Wandsworth. <laughs> His co-conspirators included one Humphrey Littleton, who was dragged in chains to Guildford and publicly executed. Imagine the shame brought upon my family. <laughs> Apparently they were okay about publicly executed, but Guildford? <laughs> Humph, you come from uh, what you've described as a family with a capital F, um, a fairly upper-class family, and... Uh... Obviously one with its share of eccentrics. You've said that you thought you'd have to reckon with your ancestors. What do you mean by that? Are you a black sheep? Well, I don't think that uh, if they all sort of came back to life and converged on me, even if I'm playing at the bull's head at Barnes, that there'd be many, you know, smiles of approval and nodding of heads. But uh, because I don't, I don't know that there were any musicians... My mother was very musical in the sense she dabbled in music. She played, the, you know, piano and, and things like recorder when they came into fashion. And when she was 75 and rock and roll was, uh, had been in for a while, she bought a guitar. Never got anywhere <laughs> with it. My father, I discovered, I'm rather pleased because I think he, he couldn't understand, you know, my music at all and didn't really take it terribly seriously. And then after he died, I found quite a long time after a, a magazine among his effects from Cambridge in the late 1800s, when he was up there, which included a profile of him. And uh, in one place it said, when George Littleton practices the cello, all the cats in the district converge upon his rooms in the belief that one of their number is in distress. <laughs> and I read that and I thought, right. Humph's skill as a jazz man and his passion for the music formed the other major strand in his life. Although his love of jazz and the trumpet began at school, he'd already enjoyed a long career in music. Not of a sort. I think in infancy, I think anything that you banged, you know, like a dulcimers then were, now they're all the posh now, but a dulcimer was just a row of, like a miniature xylophone. Oh, right. Little metal things that jigged about on a couple of bits of wood. And I'm told that I sort of hammered out tunes quite early on them, that. And then I graduated through all kinds of toy things. I used to love toy instruments. Birthdays were easy for me, just to go down and get some awful old tin. I had a tin saxophone once, loved it. Sleepless nights thinking about it. I was a bit horrified to see that one of your first instruments was a variety of banjo. It was, yes. It, I got that uh, as, a reward, as a reward for having my tonsils out. But I loved, I loved all instruments. I even fell in love with the banjolele, which was a sort of banjo-shaped ukulele. And then I went on to mouth organ. I became a bit of a... I was a Larry Adler fan, and I used to do all that funny business with the fingers, you know. The, oh, right, yeah. About. And my first band at school was a quartet in which I played the mouth organ. What music did you play? We used to practice. Well, most of the time it was only practising. 
in a room at my father's house because he was a master at Eton. I had to board somewhere else because uh, you couldn't board in the same house as your father. And um, so I I used to go over to the house on Sundays. We used to play underneath his study. And one day he said to me, uh, what's that tune that you're always playing? And I thought, uh, oh, he's beginning to take an interest at last. So I said, it's it's called whispering, why do you ask? And he said, well, I just want to know how to avoid it in future. (laughs) And you had a kazoo band at one time, I believe. Sunnydale School. Well, actually, you know, when when you look back on sort of definitive moments in your life, I was sent off to Sunnydale Preparatory School at the age of eight. And um, the first headmaster used to read Shakespeare to us on Sundays. And then a new headmaster came in who was much more forward-looking. And he got one of the undermasters called Charlie Sheepshanks to organize a jazz band in which everybody played swanny whistles and kazoos, which is why I take it quite calmly. <laughs> oh, and I'm sorry, I had a clue when those instruments come up. And um, so that, that, that really started me performing in public. for jazz fans in the real world, Humph outgrew these childish instruments, although he's never quite escaped them. His musical tastes began to mature when he started listening to jazz on the radio. It sort of sneaked up on me out of the dance band programmes that used to come from the big hotels, because at the end of the ordinary mainstream programmes, late at night, which would then have been, what, the light programme, there used to be, you know, here's from the Mayfair Hotel, here's Harry Roy and his band. And jazz sneaked through the 30s, towards the end of the 30s, it sneaked into those programmes. And um, I heard Nacanella, who was the first trumpet player to play in the sort of Louis Armstrong style. He went from one band to another, because he was such a star. And it just occurred to me, I'd like to do this. And his music, in fact, led me to Louis Armstrong. And when I heard Louis Armstrong play the Basin Street Blues on a 1929 recording, I remember to this day, it's it's like a Chinese meal. You never quite recapture the excitement of the first one, but I very nearly recaptured the excitement of hearing Louis' solo on, uh, on Basin Street Blues. Wow. And that did it for me. That was my undoing. My mother went and bought me a trumpet. She trailed round after me. It was a bizarre situation because there was the Eton and Harrow match at Lords, and you were, if you were a cricketer, you sort of had to go and support the old school at Lords. And my mother and I sneaked away from from the cricket ground, which we were, which was boring us rigid, and she went to Charing Cross Road to buy me a trumpet. And the gear that you wore on that occasion, it had to be a formal uniform. So I turned up in Selma's in the Charing Cross Road wearing a top hat and a grey waist, a silvery grey waistcoat with a, an, an umbrella, rolled umbrella with a tassel, bl- light blue tassel, which was our colour, and, uh, oh, the whole thing, tailcoat and everything, which, and, which shook them a bit rigid, I think. And my mother trailed round the shop. I went round looking immediately at the trumpets. And she, I remember her trailing round behind me saying, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't a clarinet be nicer? Nope.
The day war broke out, Humph was an 18-year-old sixth former. On October the 13th, 1939, he and his school chums trooped up to London to enlist. As one of his friend's fathers had been a grenadier guard, they chose the grenadiers. When he was called up on June the 6th, 1941 at Caterham, the beloved trumpet had to be left behind. There was no time for music in the war. But as soon as he reached Sandhurst, Humph sent home for his trumpet and formed a band. They played in the mess after evening meals, and wherever he went, Catrick, Windsor, at home in Eton, he would get a band together. Eventually, Humph was posted to Salerno, and arrived just in time for the surrender of Italy. The rejoicing was premature, however, as the exhausted Italians were merely replaced by fresh German troops. Humph, by now a signals officer, was finally invalided out with malaria and dysentery. Having formed bands wherever he went, it was perhaps appropriate that he happened to have his trumpet with him when he was part of the crowd outside Buckingham Palace on VE Day, as they waited for the arrival of the King and Queen on the balcony. For years I told the story, beginning to believe... Uh, or suspect that I'd made it up. One of my musicians used to be a sort of archivist. He, in any, anything that moved, he used to sort of adopt. And he got a colleague in the BBC to smuggle out a tape of um, V-Day because the colleague had said, I think you'll find, you know, that there's uh, something interesting on it. And he discovered that it was a tape of Howard Marshall with a very partial BBC voice saying, and before we go back to the studio, let's join the scene where there's a young man down there playing the trumpet and all that, and there's me. Which is, I'd, I'd never known that it was on tape anyway. Yes, that was Humph, playing in the post-war piece. At this stage, he was leading a double life. By day, guardsman Jekyll, by night, jazz fiend Hyde, splitting his time between Chelsea Barracks and a Regent Street jazz club called The Nuthouse. When he was demobbed, Humph had to decide what to do with his future, and despite his love of jazz and the time he spent playing, he still had no intention of making jazz his primary career. He toyed with an offer to teach geography at Eton, but one look at the refresher course in classics he'd have to take was enough to put him off. Instead, he thought he'd pursue his other talent, drawing. With a Ministry of Education ex-serviceman study grant of £163 a year, he enrolled at Camberwell School of Arts. He wore his army battle dress, dyed dark blue, with an expanse of grey sweater showing below the waistline of the jacket, a natural sartorial flair that has never really left him. He also kicked up his heels in the face of convention and became addicted to chop suey. And as for the music, well, he found himself playing an increasing number of gigs. I was adopted by a drummer called Carlo Kramer. Took me on gigs with various musicians and that. First regular band I was in was George Webb's Dixielanders, which was uh, a, a New Orleans revivalist band. And uh, George Webb's band, they were all um, armaments workers and things like that in the south of London. And I was with them for a year. And uh, then I formed my own band, 1948. And I can tell you, as it's very important to have all the details, February the 22nd, 1948, at Cook's Ferry Inn was the first uh, note we blew in anger and got paid at the end. 30 bob and all the beer you can drink was the tree then. only pop hit so far, which reached number 19 in the charts in the summer of 1956. Number one at the time was Frankie Lyman with Why Do Fools Fall In Love? Although Humph continued playing with the band, he gave up his art course after two years. One of the tutors found his serious drawings so funny that Humph decided he'd be better suited to comic art. 
The cartoonist Trog, pen name of fellow jazzman Wally Fawkes, who played alongside him in the Dixielanders, helped him find a place on the staff of the Daily Mail, illustrating and breaking up the columns with funny little drawings he called humphs. He graduated to creating storylines and writing the words in the balloons for Trog's fluke cartoon strip. Since those days, Humph has used his quirky artistic talent to illustrate several books. As the Humphrey Littleton band gained prominence and a kind of respectability, Humph was given his own TV and radio jazz shows by the BBC. By 1950, he was a regular presenter of Jazz Club, and on TV he presented 625 and Jazz Goes to College in the 60s. But Humph, the future game show host, wasn't only interested in music. For years, he'd been listening to a wide range of radio comedy. A lot of shows came over from America, so I used to listen avidly to Jack Benny's show. He's another hero of mine. Because there wasn't an awful lot of radio comedy that I can recall in the 1930s. And if there had been, at school we were limited. You couldn't listen to the radio unless you were dying in the sanatorium and then you could have a radio. Mm. But I loved all those wartime shows. Much Binding in the Marsh and the Navy Lark and all those things. I can't remember which came first, Round the Horn or Beyond Our Kent. But I listened to all those. It's a funny thing about them. I recently bought a, a little box set of t tapes from the BBC whatever they call the place where you go and buy things. And, uh, shop. Shop. Yeah. <laughs> That's, thank you. And um, I got a Kenny Thor around the Ken thing, and I never knew, you know, because people uh, have, have been kind enough to say nice things about my timing, which I've never been aware of. And uh, when I play these things, I discovered that I've been subconsciously influenced by Kenny Thorne. There was the same thing of a, a straightforward statement followed by pause, and then the turnaround, you know, that gets the laugh. And uh, I, I must have subliminally got that from Kenneth Horne as much as anyone. Hello, good evening, welcome to Beyond Our Ken. Well, now, as usual, I've had a hectic week. On Monday, the Air Ministry told me they were having a big RAF march past, and they asked me to lead the parade. Apparently, the goat was sick. <laughs> However, I couldn't go because I'd already arranged a visit to Hull. It was the BBC's idea, actually. They said to me, Horn, why don't you go to Hull? And <laughs> so I did. I loved the Hancocks. Because they were, they were very original, weren't they? I mean, those scripts of Galton and Simpson. We present Tony Hancock, Sidney James, Bill Kerr, Hattie Jakes and Kenneth Williams in... Hancock's Welfare. It was very daring to start the programme as they did on Sunday morning, to have them all sitting round in a room doing what yeah, I've done many times in a room when I've been with a group of people on a Sunday morning, nothing to do. Oh, dear. And you just sort of sit there going... Uh, oh, dear, oh, dear. Well... Uh, Mm. Oh, dear me. And they had this sketch which started like that, and as far as I recall, pretty well went on like that all the way through. <sighs> Lovely stuff. Stone me, what a life. <laughs> but for today's Radio 4 listeners, the most significant event in Humphrey Littleton's career came with that invitation from David Hatch to present I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Ladies and gentlemen, please bow in reverence and humility. <laughs> Mr. Humphrey Littleton! When my grandparents were not nearly as old as he is, they were going to bed at sort of seven o'clock in the evening and referring to John Craven's news round as the five o'clock news. So it does seem to be extraordinary that he manages to pack in as much as he does. And uh, I do think, you know, what a very hip uh, elderly gentleman he is. John Naismith has produced the show for the last 10 years, and he vividly remembers what it felt like being thrown in at the deep end when, at short notice, he was called in to take over the production. It came as a horrible shock when he realised he was expected to write the links for Humph. 
It was a shock. It was a shock because I was under the impression that I was going to be weaned onto it and it would all be very easy and comfortable and I could really just sort of enjoy the ride. And uh, not having written anything that had been broadcast hitherto, I was seized with utter terror. Then come the show, the, the, the revelation dawned and my admiration for Humphrey began in earnest because these links that I had sort of struggled to do over two evenings which I have to say weren't completely dreadful, he nevertheless conjured into something completely different and his genius was just sudden and apparent. Where he really works best as a chairman is with this sort of spurious gravitas that he has, the utter nonsense that he often engages you lot in. I mean, without someone supposedly taking them seriously they would just be utterly childish. But because he has asked you to do them, it somehow justifies it. Well, our next round is called Dropout Song. I shall play in a selection of gramophone recordings, teams, which I'd like you to accompany. DJ Sven has his hand poised over my reproduction equipment. (laughs) And at my signal, he'll twist the knob, causing everything to drop out. If when the music returns, you're closer than a gnat's semi-quaver to the original, I'll be awarding points. And points mean prizes. What do points mean? Prizes! Now go and invade Czechoslovakia. (laughs) Come back, madam, I'm only joking. (laughs) After a time, it struck John that Humph's talents as a presenter were being underused. So to capitalise on these, he enlisted Ian Pattinson, who was at the time writing for the news quiz. The usual cliché about Humph and his, his delivery is this jazz timing where simply on his, his, his phrasing and where he leaves the right length of gap or what, what appears to be the wrong length of gap, he'll bring something to it which even I as the writer hadn't thought was there. I remember once... Um, writing a fairly simple line towards the end of a show, saying, well, we've uh, certainly got through an awful lot of games this evening, thinking that he would pause and let the audience think about it and get a bit of a giggle on uh, an awful lot of games. In fact, he read, well, we've certainly got through a lot of awful games tonight and got a laugh. Then he said, "Um, oh, I think I misread that and got a bigger laugh. Then he paused for about a beat and a half and said, no, I didn't and then got a huge laugh, simply from turning two words round and putting a bit of timing in. And that beat and a half. And that beat and a half, yeah. But first, I noticed from the pile of correspondence in the Mornington Crescent <laughs> listener reaction matchbox <laughs> that we've received very nearly two letters this week. It comes from a Mrs Trellis of North Wales. <laughs> who tells us she's recently been taking a French-language correspondence course. She writes, Mon cher Humpty. (laughs) Zoot alors. (laughs) Oi, oi, oi. Many de mes amis ici en Wales du Nord reconnaît votre programme et un grand pal de cobbler. Oh, I love it. I love it. In fact, I have to go, as you know, when I get there to the studio, which is after you've all arrived and sort of talked about things, uh, as soon as I get the cards with all the links on from our producer, John Naismith, I have to find a distant dressing room and I have to read through his scripts over and over, at least three times, probably more. Otherwise, if I come up upon his, uh, one of his gags and things, I'd start getting the giggles, as you know, I have done it. <laughs> they donne it un grand nom. Mais au contraire, moi, every time je hear le sig tune, je want to go wee oui, wee. Oui. But... <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's more to Humph's art than being good with a script. He does actually control the proceedings on the show with enormous style, but he doesn't do it like a football referee, running about with the players in the thick of the action. He's more like a tennis umpire, sitting high above the players, looking down and quite remote from them. And yet, at the same time, he's very much part of the performance. He's the person that is the conductor in a way. He's lead trumpet, lead lead fiddle, 
we take the lead from him and we will play our bits. We know when it's solo and we, and we know when we're going to be playing ensemble. Our next round flies in the face of the many chart-topping wireless programmes that have transferred to television. For in this round, teams, I'd like you to reverse the process by recreating for the listeners our own version of my favourite programme, Countdown. Although, obviously, it's hard to envisage quite how you'll match up to the speed and feverish pace of the original. <laughs> for those unfamiliar with the game, the object is for the teams to create as many words as they can from a random collection of letters provided for them. So, as our own Samantha now takes on the mantle of Carol Vorderman, <laughs> I can see the letters coming up, and I'll read them out as she puts them up. They are G, G, who? G. Is that another G? G, G. G. G, G, G. G, G, G. Four Gs. Z. <laughs> v. Q. Y. Indeed. And, oh dear, G again. I suppose it's too late to ask for a vowel. Okay, we'll stop it. Start. <laughs> start the clock, uh, but uh, as Colin Sell doesn't know the music for this one, to play through the 30 seconds there, he's never up by 4.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do it for him. Okay, start now. Da 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 It may be professional rivalry between musicians, but the only time we see Humphrey's gentlemanly mask slip is when he's being perfectly horrid to our pianist, Colin Sell. Well, it started justifiably, and there was some music game coming up, and Barry said to me, Humphrey, just to get this straight before we go on, does such, such and such a thing happen? And before I could answer, Colin Sell rose up from the piano with his hands uh, on the headphones and uh, off mic and started to explain it. And for some reason, suddenly my sense of, what is it, amour propre rose and I, and I said, do you mind? I'm the chairman. And... Uh, that's run on ever since. Like a lot of things, as you know, in the show, they, they happen and then they become running gags, which is a great thing about it. And uh, since then, you know, it's gone on to the extent that his mother, according to him, once said to him, why do you let that dreadful man speak to you like that? I think the idea is that I'm supposed to be at his bidding. I think that's the idea. And I think, and I, think, and I don't purpose, I don't try to do anything which is going to go against that image. It's just that things happen. He does get lost sometimes, or, or sometimes I have to stop somebody who's singing and we have to restart or something. And he, he, he pretends then to get very uppity about it and uh, wants to stay in charge and so on. So I, I think that's the, 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 it's kind of the anonymous pianist. And when I stop being anonymous, I think that's probably when the fun starts. Humph um, did tell me once that he was um, playing with his band at a gig. And uh, afterwards, a gentleman came up to him looking terribly serious, and Hump thought, oh dear, this man's going to complain or something about the music. And this man said, Mr Littleton, can I ask you a question in strictest confidence? And Hump said, yes, of course you can. And he said, do Colin Sell and Samantha really exist? Which uh, I, thought was, I thought was terribly funny. Anyway, Hump says that he said to this man, oh, Samantha does. And that was that, and the man walked away. He's perfectly happy with the answer. Satisfied. Satisfied that Collins didn't His really exist. suspicions were confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's now time for a round called Just a Minim. Teams, I'd like each of you to perform a song of my choosing without repetition, hesitation, deviation, or repetition. <laughs> Buzzers are provided for the non-singers to challenge. And take note, teams, that excess buzzing may drown out the piano accompaniment of Colin Sell. With any luck. <laughs> Incidentally, Colin doesn't restrict himself just to playing the piano. In fact, he's recently been excelling himself with the cornet. Although, if anyone prefers, he does carry mivies and chalk ices. <laughs> right, the song is Run, Rabbit, Run. And Graham, will you start, please? 
on the farm every Friday on the farm. It's rapid Friday. It's every Friday that ever comes from London. Oh, was that a chat? Yeah, it was. He did say on the farm twice, didn't he? And Friday. Yeah. No, you're right. I, I thought I could get away with it. But... Yeah. <laughs> That's the first time, actually, that there's been a correct challenge for, I think it's <laughs> seven and a half years, and I've forgotten what we actually do now. In anybody else's hands, a show like I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue would descend into anarchy and chaos and by now would have been put down out of kindness. So what is it about Humph's masterly touch that makes it work? I think that, unlike other presenters, he's not a smooth operator. He seems to have no interest in keeping the shows slickly on course. If something seems to be grinding to an embarrassing halt, he lets it. If anything goes wrong, he points it out to the audience. He appears to be supremely indifferent to the nonsense that's going on around him. And the audience adore it. And so do we. The teams obediently shut up when he's talking because we genuinely want to hear what he's going to say. I can't think of anybody that it would hurt me more who said, that's, I'm afraid you're not good enough. I mean, the, the bright, so-called brightest people in the country, the commentators, I could take them, oh, God, you're so stupid, you stupid person. I got it from Humph, I'd think, oh, gosh, maybe I'm not very good. Um, Willie Rushton, um, very sadly Willie died, but the one thing Willie Rushton and I agreed was that Clue could go on forever as long as Hump was around, and if he wasn't around, then, then that's it. So when Willie died, people said to me, well, what, what do you think? And I said, well, Willie and I both agreed, Hump's alive, um, it should keep going whoever's, whoever in the team. And that's the best thing one can say about him, really. Well, it's almost time to end the show, but not before we fit in a round of Pensioner's Book Club. <laughs> Samantha has to nip out again to see an elderly lord who regularly complains to Radio 4 about their parliamentary coverage. She says she thinks she's even going to start getting a little hard on today in Parliament. <laughs> he turns up so late sometimes that I, as producer, am mildly terrified that, you know, he won't turn up and there we are stuck in Glasgow or... Liverpool or somewhere, and what on earth am I going to do? I've got an audience of people who are desperate to see the show. He will sort of glance over the script for about half an hour, uh, put it down and really show no, not a hint of nerves, and then disappear swiftly after, show very little interest in socialising with the rest of us. In, in the ten years I've been doing the show, I've never had his home phone number. He, he once... Um, telephoned me on his mobile. He actually phoned my mobile and wasn't aware that uh, the whole digital system that mobiles operate on mean that when he calls me, his number flashes up onto my phone. And so I was greatly pleased to have trapped his mobile phone number. Um, as soon as he discovered this, he swiftly changed his number. So we've none of us had his telephone number. We don't really know where he lives. Uh, he is an enigma which, frankly, makes him all the more exciting. It amazes me that no-one in BBC television has seen what he can do. If you've ever seen him on a bandstand, if you've ever seen him with an audience, he's just terrific. In private life, I mean, I've sat at the same lunch with him, table with him a couple of times. He's very quiet, modest, retiring. I spoke with him at Peter Clayton's memorial service, and he said his piece, and it was fantastic, and then he sort of melted away. He doesn't need to make a show. Now, maybe it's that thing that he hasn't got the elbows out. He's not always saying, look at me, look at me, that's made television overlook him. What fools. However, let's not weep. Television's loss is radio's gain. Julian Reynolds. And what about the future? Well, Humph's always been happy to take whatever comes along. He's still touring and broadcasting, so he obviously has no plans to slow down. And he must be justifiably proud of his achievements in radio comedy. I've made a rule over the years, and how many is it now, 29 or something or other, since 1972? I've made a rule to avoid thinking about it <laughs> at all costs. I get scared if I thought about it. I never listen to myself on radio. What I like about it is being, being en route somewhere or other and stopping at traffic lights. 
while the program's on and looking along the line and seeing people in cars alongside me, their shoulders shaking with laughter. I love that. Some people have said I nearly swerved. They've told me I nearly swerved off the road and then something happened. But no, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a ball. As for the future of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, well, it goes on evolving. And now there are endless online clue clubs, chat rooms and Mornington Crescent societies. Perhaps Clue will evolve into an interactive virtual antidote to panel games, a global experience on the net. Who knows? All that remains to be said now is, you're a gent and a scholar, Humph. And I, for one, look forward to the next time I find myself on the receiving end of your courteous disdain. It's your turn, Willie. Oh. Bang, crash, wallop, whoop, go the farmer's gun, lope, possum, sprint, kangaroo, jump, lurch, lope. Oh, my God, he's back to run, run. <laughs> you see? Teamwork. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Challenge from Graham. Oh, we had rabbit in rabbit pie at the beginning. <laughs> All right. I accept that. Well, that was fun. Let's have another game. <laughs> Wish they wouldn't make me say that was fun all the time. <laughs> I'll decide if it was fun or not. <laughs> well, as the still warm seat of eternity is lifted by the char lady of time. <laughs> before she brandishes aloft the toilet duck of destiny. I notice it's the end of the show, so from Sven, the teams and myself, goodbye. You've been listening to Archive Hour, Humph at 80. Taking part were Humphrey Littleton, Tim Brooke Taylor, Barry Cryer, John Naismith, Colin Sell, Ian Pattinson, David Hatch, Paul Merton and Gillian Reynolds. The presenter was Graham Garden and the producer was Cathy Drysdale. Thank you.